A reading from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you a message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to him. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. The word of the Lord. From the letter to Philemon, verses 1 through 21. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, Also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my my very heart, back to you, and I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may become, that I may have some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, 
knowing that you will do even more than I ask. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up, on, give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all this morning. One of the things that we wrestle with as parents is trying to get our kids to do the things that they're supposed to do. Amen? <laughs> no offense, kids. It's just reality. Um, we all have some basic desires for our kids, like the very basic desires. Like, we want to keep them alive. Okay? It's important. Uh, we want them to be healthy. We want them to eventually grow up to be an adult, right? All good, wonderful, core goals. On top of that, there's kind of another layer. We, we want to do things like mitigate trauma for them. Like, we want to shepherd them through things they don't understand when they have difficult times. We want to walk them through those things. And then ultimately, we want them to learn to be the kinds of people who love and serve the world, don't we? Not just themselves. Those of us who are Christians, we want them to learn to live Christianly in the world, to learn to live how that is. There is, of course, a point in time where, and points throughout time, where they will need to choose to follow that path that's been laid out for them. It's their choice. It's not our choice. But, but we want them to know that they have a deeper identity than what the world tries to say that they are that there is something more fundamental to them than all of the messages that they get throughout the world and throughout their lives. When they're young, we, we as parents, we try to learn how do we motivate them? <laughs> how do we try to form and shape them and form and shape their will over time? So for example, it's difficult to reason with a two-year-old, okay? That's hard. Yeah, we got amens here. Um, so, so they don't quite understand like, why can't I climb on the countertops? There is a good reason for that. We know how high that is. We know the damage that that could do, but we can't sit down and tell them, here's all the reasons. They still won't understand. You can't reason with them. So we have to do other motivations. We have to try to figure out how to get them to do what's right and to healthy and healthy. We form and shape them according to their understanding. Now, our ultimate hope is that they'll learn to trust us learn to trust that we love them, that we know what's best for them, that when dad says, because I said so, that I do have a good reason <laughs> behind it, right? But part of the process of individuation for them is that they need to test limits. They need to push back. 
They need to challenge things. That's healthy to explore. So we do things like create incentive charts, don't we? Um, every day you don't have to go to the office at school, you get a star. If you get enough stars, you get to go to Dave and Buster's. That's all hypothetical. I just pulled that out of the air. That doesn't have anything to do with real life, right? I just made that up. But we also, in addition to incentives, we have to create consequences. Perhaps consequences, and I promise this is getting beyond parenting eventually, okay? But, but it's important. Um, particularly the consequences we want to be tied to natural, real-world consequences, right? So if you're disobedient, we're worried that you might have had too much screen time and that might have affected you in some way. So for the next few days, you're not going to have screen time, okay? These natural consequences. And love at times has to be tough. And eventually the consequences may have to be more severe than just screen time. If a teenage child has a drug addiction, a pattern, pattern of arrests, the parent often must choose for the child to hit rock bottom, as difficult as that is, because it's tough love, part of it. We recognize that there are appropriate consequences to our actions. And there are other forms of motivation too, not just incentives and not just consequences, but we verbally encourage, don't we? We do that with each other. You can do it. You can make it. You can get through it. That's not just a parenting thing. Like we encourage each other. You can make the right choice. The ultimate goal for the child is to see and to know the best path in life and to choose that. But of course, the challenge for this is that we parents are still longing for the best path of life. We're broken. We don't get it. We mess up. All of us do. We rarely believe, and I, I'm saying with parenting, but follow the metaphor here. We rarely believe that we're doing anything like shaping or forming. We're just doing everyday stuff, <laughs> trying to make sure that the bottle is warm enough. <laughs> we're trying to get them up and out of bed and school on time. We're trying to make sure that they hold our freaking hand in the parking lot, right? <laughs> so that they don't die. Again, this is all hypothetical. And then it's frustrating when they don't cooperate, okay? But as maddening as it is for us parents who are imperfect creatures, who are still trying to figure out this way in our life ourselves, imagine how maddening it is for God when we don't cooperate with his great love for us. One of the major themes that we see throughout the Bible is this loving God compelling his creatures into a better way of life compelling them towards his love and towards his forming and towards his shaping. He seeks after us. He pursues us to be who we've been created to be. Eugene Peterson says of our Jeremiah passage today, the potter and the clay, he says that God has this question for Jeremiah. And here's how Eugene Peterson phrases it. How can I get these people to take me seriously right where they are? How can I get them to see that I'm working right now, silently and invisibly, but surely and eternally in their lives and history? How can I get them to see the connections between what they're doing now and who they will be in, 20, in 10 years, in 20 years? How can I get them to see the continuities between what I did in Abraham and Moses and David and what they are now? How can I get them out of their tedious egos into my glorious will here and now? And so to give Jeremiah an image of how he works, God sends Jeremiah to the potter's house. 
Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, those of you who were with us, the first words that God spoke to Jeremiah was, before I shaped you in the womb, I knew you. This idea of shaping, of forming, of kind of creating something, God shaped Jeremiah and he's saying, just as I've shaped you, I'm shaping my people like a potter shapes clay. I think it's so amazing how God, when he wants to show us the connections in our lives, he doesn't do it through just this like otherworldly divine revelation, at least not that often. Instead, he plunges us into the depths of ordinary things, everyday things. God reveals how he works in the ordinary, the everyday stuff of life. We're in ordinary time right now in the season of the calendar, which I told you when I first started moving in this direction, I used to hate this part where I'd get up and I'd say, it's ordinary time because I was trained in church that every Sunday we had to make it extraordinary. (laughs) But God is in the ordinary. We could even say there's something extraordinary about the ordinary. God says to Jeremiah, go to the place where the guy makes pottery. Go to that ordinary place. One of the odd things um, Friday night about the ordination service um, that many of you commented on was all of the use of materials, of stuff, okay? So we have, we have a cross that processes forward, a wooden cross. We have a cross necklace here, right? We have vestments, these garments. We have bread and wine. And it's not just that these things are symbols, even though they are. We talked about that on Friday night. They are symbols of something. And also, there's not something superstitious about them. It's not that there's some weird kind of magic or superstition in these elements. No, that's not what we're talking about here. What it shows is that God uses ordinary, everyday stuff everyday, tangible, real kinds of stuff. So we talked about a stone that's made from the same quarry that cathedrals were built. That's just stone. Oil has always been a source of healing and a way of kind of setting people apart. Oil is ordinary. It's a normal substance from the earth. Real bread, real wine. And we believe that God's presence is somehow with us in the bread and wine, but we also believe it doesn't cease to become real bread and real wine that it's real elements. It's part of just ordinary stuff that God uses. So what God does is he sends Jeremiah to a place where ordinary work is happening, pottery making. At this time in Israel, everybody knew where the potter's house was. It was a normal part of life. It was somebody's house where they lived and they probably worked and they made pottery. Today, the ordinary might be our offices or our homes where real work and real life is happening. God is working. Everyday work means something. Everyday stuff that we do matters and God is present in that. Christianity is not about transcending our ordinary lives and going to some higher plane. It's about finding that God is working in us in the ordinary. The invention of pottery was super important. Maybe many of you know that, right? It was actually a big deal and probably a bigger deal than we think it was. When pottery was invented, people could finally, for the first time, store things and carry things from one place to the other. We take that for granted, don't we? This was before Tupperware, at least by a few years, right? Before Tupperware parties, they had party pottery party. No, they didn't. But before pottery, what happened is people wandered in herds and they would just go from place to place and all sustenance was hand to mouth. 
Whatever I could gather, I ate it there, and then I just moved on. I couldn't carry anything from place to place. So pottery was this revolution. We don't think of pottery as very revolutionary, but it was a revolution that changed the whole world. People can carry stuff and preserve stuff from place to place. It gives you a whole new appreciation for the container store, doesn't it? This is a thing. But pottery is different than a lot of the other things we have today and that it doesn't come off an assembly line. It's not mass produced. Well, I think they do mass produce some of it now, but, but it, it's art. Pottery in its core form is taking raw materials and forming it into something. It's formed, it's painted, it's glazed, and it's fired. One of the most functional items of life is also one of the most beautiful. Function and beauty go together. Peterson points out that in our world, we tend to separate things that are useful and things that are beautiful. We have art that's beautiful, but then we have useful things that aren't really supposed to be beautiful. That's not how God works. In God, the useful and the beautiful come together. This is what our God does. He takes the raw materials of creation and he makes something. He takes ordinary things and the ordinary things of our life and he breathes his life into them. He takes us with all our faults and all our ordinariness. He takes our driving to work, our budgeting, our changing diapers, our doing the dishes life and he forms it into something. He does something with it. And he does so uniquely with each of us. So each of us are kind of different. It's cool. And he creates us as something to carry. We carry his presence. We carry his name. We carry his image in the world. But Jeremiah says, he gives this image of the pot that's been marred or spoiled is another uh, translation for it. This, this pot that he is making is not working right. It's, it's being, the clay is being shaped in a weird way that it wouldn't be beautiful or useful. It would be misshapen. It was fighting the potter. It's being misshapen or malformed or maybe even lopsided or full of holes so that it wouldn't work right. And Jeremiah knew this image because he knew people in the world who were marred pots or spoiled pots, right? Jeremiah knew about men and women who with impurities and blemishes who constantly resist the shaping hands of, cre- of the creator because that's everybody. That's him, that's Israel. Jeremiah rubs shoulders with these people and we do every day. We're broken, we resist, we are malformed in some way. Friday, I was putting all the details together for my part of the ordination and it was a busy day and, and I went to Ugly Mugs to get my usual drink, which I just do. And I have for six years. And I love that place and I love that drink. <laughs> and, and I went there and my drink is an iced quad shot whole milk latte. And they know my drink when I walk in the door and they make it for me and I love it. I only drink whole milk. I don't drink the other milks. <laughs> I don't drink skim milk. I don't drink 2% milk. That's milk flavored water, that's not milk. Ah, Thank you. Thank you. And I know the look of that drink so well that when it is made with 2% milk or it is made with skim milk, I know it immediately when I see it, okay? Um, I also love that place. 
That place has been my coffee shop since I moved here. I've had two family members as baristas there throughout time. And they know me and I don't have to say my drink. And I had a lot that day to prepare for the ceremony and it was a crazy day, but I felt like I was basking in a pre-ordination glow. Okay. In fact, somebody, my priest friend told me that. He said, you got your pre-ordination glow going on. I had prayed, I was ready, I was prepared for what to come. In fact, I was feeling a little priestly, I must say. And then the barista made my latte and it didn't look like whole milk. And I said, oh man, um, is that whole milk in there? And he said, yes. But then he backed up a little bit. And he said, actually, no, we're out of whole milk. That's 2% milk. And y'all, I almost lost my salvation over my latte milk. (laughs) You guys know me. I don't get angry very often, okay? But I was pretty ticked. And thankfully, I didn't let that show. (laughs) Thankful for that. Um, Friday night almost didn't happen because of, no, I'm just kidding. That's... But the reminder, so I'm, I thought about how, how much that bothered me. And I said, what is going on here? What is wrong with me? What is my problem? And then I knew instantly what is wrong with me. I'm a marred pot. <laughs> I'm a pot that's malformed. <laughs> I'm a pot that resists the creator's hands. And that happens over and over again. I was that before I was a priest. I am that now that I am a priest, right? I am dependent on God. Even as I serve people in ministry, I'm a broken helper, a wounded healer, right? We all are. We are all marred and spoiled pots, uneven and full of holes, unable of carrying anything for very long. So what does the potter do with those kind of pots that are coming together and they're... Well, our God doesn't give up on spoiled pots, marred pots. He keeps working. Sometimes that means tearing things down and starting over again. Sometimes it means using that material to make a new one altogether. He takes that resistant clay that's been fighting him and doesn't wanna be shaped in the way that he designs it to be, and he is intent on making something out of it. Jeremiah compels Israel not to resist God's activity. God is working in you. He's forming you. He's shaping you. Be compelled by his love. Join him. Don't resist it. Trust what he is doing in your life. Not only are there individuals who are spoiled and marred and full of holes, the systems that human beings have created are that way too. Um, In our New Testament reading, uh, Paul is writing to a man named Philemon. In fact, we have almost the entire letter of Philemon here today. I get a little confused by the, um, by the lectionary sometimes because there's two verses that they left out. And this is the, the whole year, this is all of Philemon that we get is all, all of uh, these 22 verses. And then there's two that are left out. I'm like, come on, can't we just read the last two as well, right? But Philemon is a Christian man. And Paul says he has great hospitality and great love. He's known for that. He and Paul are friends. He's generous with his money. He and his family are all involved in the work of the gospel. There's a Christian congregation meeting in their home. He's known as this loving, generous guy. But there's something really awkward. Like every person of means in the first century, Philemon owns slaves. This guy full of love and hospitality who had a church in his home owns slaves. People of means at this time own slaves like many of us today own cars or television sets. 
It seemed natural in that culture, just part of it. People would wonder, how could you live without them? In the same way we would go, how could you live without some of us a car or, or a television set? To us, that seems, to us, we look at slavery and we think it's abhorrent, but to them, it was part of society. And that's sad, it's awful. One of Philemon's slaves had run away and his name was Onesimus, which his name means useful. But apparently the reality was Onesimus had not been very useful to Philemon, okay? That's what Paul indicates here. Well, what happened is Onesimus ran away and he found Paul and he came under Paul's care. So Paul began to shape him and form him and Onesimus became a Christian, became part of the family of God. And now he's returning to Philemon. So what Paul does is is brilliant. He tackles this great evil of slavery. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. It does, but listen to how Paul does it. He is delicate in regards to this systemic evil. The gospel proclaims liberation. It's liberation throughout the whole thing. It's freedom. Slavery and the gospel are not compatible. They're antithetical to each other. And yet it was such a part of the fabric of this culture. So what Paul does is he speaks against it subtly and he challenges the institution based on love and based on a deeper identity. He is like, he is the, like God, the God who compels his people by love to turn around and to change. So Paul says to Philemon that Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave, had become Paul's child. That's the language he uses. And Paul has become his father. Now that's not literal, of course, but Paul has become a spiritual father. He's cared for Onesimus. And he says, I'm now sending him to you. And by sending him, I'm actually sending my own heart. I'm sending myself to you by sending Onesimus back. Think about the gospel implications of that. That our God is the one who sent his own heart when he sent his son for us to compel us by his love. That's what Paul says as he sends Onesimus back. So Paul delicately tells Philemon, it is your Christian duty to release Onesimus. He has a different identity now than that of your slave. He is part of the family just as you, Philemon, are part of the family. Think about this for a minute. Paul is challenging Philemon in relation to how he sees himself and how he sees his rights in this culture. Can you imagine what would happen if Philemon were to release a slave who had run away from him? Think about that. Every slave would want to run away. It's what Philemon is thinking. He's going, if... If, if, one, if I forgive one runaway slave and I set him free, then all my slaves are gonna run away, right? This whole, my whole culture is gonna break down. My whole way of being in the world is gonna break down. Philemon is within his legal right in this culture to be a slave owner. But that system and that culture is a marred pot system. It's malformed, it's malshaped. So Paul calls him to something deeper than his rights, his legal rights, and calls him to his deeper identity, which is his Christian identity. And now he is a brother in Christ with Onesimus. But Paul says this, he says, I want this to be voluntary for you. I want this to be something you're compelled to do by love. I think that's so powerful. Sometimes there's tough love 
and that's necessary. But, but in this case, Paul says, I want you to do this because it's the right thing to do. It is God's way of being in the world. So Paul says he's sending him back, quote, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you. And he says, not as a slave, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And then Paul's dramatic. Paul gets really dramatic sometimes. And sometimes we don't see it in the English translation, but he gets real dramatic here. He says, if you consider me a partner at all, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he's done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me because I'm just as much of a brother as he is. I, Paul, and then he says this, I am writing this with my own hand. My secretary's not doing it. My transcriber's not doing it. I'm writing this with my own hand right now and I will pay you back. Not to mention you owe me something because I've been a part of your life in stewarding you. Why is this significant? Paul is compelling Philemon based not on the identity of slave and master, but on their mutual identity in Christ Jesus, the identity that they share with Paul himself. Paul is wooing Philemon, compelling him just as the potter is compelling the clay to understand his identity and understand Onesimus's identity. And then he says, and I'm confident you're going to do this. (laughs) This is how God works with us, compelling us, wooing us, pursuing us to give up our false identities and cling on to our identity in him. So how does the potter work with a spoiled pot? He doesn't give up. The potter takes the clay, often having to start over and over again and re-needs it and reforms it. The potter doesn't throw it away. And because the good plan of the potter is deeper and greater than the marring and the spoiling of the pot, something beautiful is created. Something amazing is created. God's plan for you is deeper than your failings. It's deeper than that other or false identity that you've had. If there's something in your past that you feel like that's the thing that's always held me back, I failed, I messed up, or I do this thing over and over again, God is not finished with you. That doesn't disqualify you. He is continuing to form you and shape you. In the midst of Israel's resistance, Jeremiah continued to preach the good news, trusting that the potter is working. Now, I wanna say this, we can resist God. We can choose another path, but God continues his work and his work is better than any other path that we would choose. God's kingdom is coming and God says to us consistently, you have the opportunity to embrace that, to allow me to shape you and to form you. The children of Israel resisted over and over again, and they experienced incredible consequences to their sin. They lost their city. They lost their temple. They were exiled in a foreign land, but God never gave up on them. Even as they messed up time and time again, their mission was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God never gave up. The potter in Jeremiah shows us what happens as we submit our lives, as we submit the world to the creativity of God. And we will resist that. I don't believe that God's work is static. I think that God often in the world works with us and works with the world as an interplay, as a back and forth. Um, I think that God chooses sometimes to argue with us, 
to allow us even through prayer and through conversation to somehow shift the ways that he works in the world. I believe in that. I don't think that God just moves along with one static kind of thing that he does. I think he chooses by his love to interplay with us, to engage with us. I think that's part, we see that all throughout the Bible when um, Abraham says to God, when God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham says, well, if I can find 50 righteous people, will you not destroy it? And then God says, sure, 50 righteous people, that's great. Okay, what, what, if, what if there's 30 righteous people? Is that cool? Yeah, 30 righteous people. Um, okay, so there's 15 maybe, I think. There's a few people said they're coming. I don't know that they're coming, right? Maybe that's what's going on here. I think God chooses in prayer to interplay with us. He invites us to be part of his plan, to be co-creators, co-workers with him. But his work still continues. His ultimate purposes of new creation in the world will happen even if that road changes over time. He's creating something beautiful. He continues to compel us by his love to join that work. And when we join in, we experience life at its best. Quickly here at the end, um, our gospel text is also about God's compelling love. Jesus compels his disciples to follow him even to the cross forsaking every other identity. Of course, we get this text today about hating your father and mother on the Sunday that my parents visit us and on my dad's birthday. It's my dad's birthday today, right? So what's going on here? Are we really supposed to hate our families? Is that really what Jesus is saying here? In order to follow him, we have to hate our, our families. Well, here's a little context. So much of Jesus's ministry, all of Jesus's ministry is about confronting the idols in his audience the things that they have put up on a pedestal and they have sought at all costs. Jesus would deconstruct that and say, you gotta let all of that stuff go in order to follow me because this is gonna be hard and it's gonna be difficult and it's gonna be your primary identity. So Jesus is constantly asking, what's the thing that defines you? So for some people, it's the temple. So he says, is it the temple? The, the temple was God given, but when you worship the temple, instead of worshiping the God of the temple, you start to create systems that keep you close to the temple and keep everyone else away from it, okay? So you can't do that. You can't make that an idol. Do you worship the law? Is that your idol? Well, the, the law is God-given, but when you worship the law, you interpret it in such a way that it becomes a boundary marker for who's in and who's out as part of God's family, so you can't worship the law either, even though it's God-given. You worship the God of the law. Do you worship political freedom? Is that your idol? There were a lot of people in the first century that they just wanted to be free from Rome at all costs. So they compromised who they were. They became violent. They were called to carry God's image and bless the world, but they had become preoccupied with violent revolution. And then Jesus says, is your family your idol? The idol of family was really about the land at this time. God gave his people the promised land and each family had a section of it and they would pass it down from generation to generation and they would steward the land. But to follow Jesus means they would be part of a kingdom movement that would go beyond their specific plot of land and would actually bless and heal the whole world. So they can't be obsessed just with their family unit and just with their plot of land. They've got to trust that God's going to work and bust all the boundaries wide open and love all people. So if you're obsessed with your family and your land, you got to lay that down. You have to reject that because you're being defined by a new identity. 
this would really tick off the Jewish leaders because these Christians were not nationalistic enough. They weren't serving of their community and their family enough. It also would tick off Rome because these Christians are launching this new kingdom movement that says that's for the whole world. In other words, these disciples, if they choose to follow Jesus, are gonna be rejected on all sides. And they have to know who their primary identity rests in. Now, I've told you before, I do think in our culture, family can be an idol. That may sound like a shock to you. How can I possibly idolize my family? Isn't that the most important thing in the world? But think about it for a second. If we trust the potter, if we trust that he is making that thing that is beautiful and right in our lives and in the world, it means we can trust him with our family. That the best way of being spouses and parents and siblings and children in the world is when we seek his kingdom first, that it all lines up, right? When that's our primary identity, not our family, it changes everything. Everything is better. If the potter knows what he's doing, we can trust that our relationships will flourish most fully when we yield to his creative work in our relationships. This means that our family can't be what holds us back from following God. We can't use our spouse or our kids as an excuse for not following God. We have a primary identity because all of it is better in his hands. So what Jesus asked his disciples is, are you ready to lay down your family responsibilities if necessary? your need to identify only with Israel and with her land, to be rejected by those closest to you for the sake of the gospel. And he compels them towards a better way. The clay is on the wheel. The potter is working. You can resist it. You can stay in your current form or you can surrender to the great formation that is happening in Christ for the world. Here's what I want us to hear today few things. First of all, your life is the creative work of God. Your life is the creative work of God, even when it feels ordinary, maybe especially when it feels ordinary. My prayer for us as a church is that we would seek God in the ordinary. It's easy to trust him in the extraordinary. When something powerful happens or emotional happens in our life, but the potter's shaping you in those things that don't seem dramatic. The image I had this week was when you make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, that God is forming you and shaping you. I think it's because I make a lot of peanut butter sandwiches right now. <laughs> Today, I also want you to hear that God doesn't give up on you in the mess. In the places where we break and fight against his formation, he keeps working and he keeps shaping. And of course, we can reject him. I don't want you to hear that. We can reject him, but he's always wooing us, <laughs> trying to draw us towards who he's created us to be. Today, I want you to hear that you have a new identity, that you're no longer defined by your cultural position. Onesimus went from slave to son. You are not defined by your past. You're not defined by what your parents said. You're not defined by what your friends said. You're not defined by what the culture says about you. You are not defined by your earning potential. You're not defined by your public persona. You are part of the family of God. And today I want us to hear that this appeal towards a new identity is not just for us individually. It changes the systems of our world. We are compelled by the love of God. When we think about the complicated and broken structures in our world, and we think about racial injustice, immigration, homelessness, poverty, wealth inequality, 
we do so as a people of a new identity. We look at a broken world and we say, we compel you to change and we're confident that you will, (laughs) right? I love in a verse that's not included in our section, Paul says to Philemon, and go ahead and uh, make up a room for me because I hope to visit soon. So he says, I'm confident you're going to do this. You're going to release him and treat him as a brother. Go ahead and make me a room because I'm going to visit you soon. I love that. There are hints here of the God who will one day return to us in the midst of our broken systems. And he's trusting that when he returns by his grace, all will be right. And finally, finally, this new identity, this creative work will challenge us to lay down our idols. What is that thing that you've allowed to define you? What is that thing that you've sought after with everything that you have? May we lay that down and trust the one who forms us and shapes us. May we know who we are and may we live in his hands. Amen.